Well, uh, good evening, church family. This uh, study of Knowing God is for Wednesday, April the 22nd, and uh, we are getting near the end of our study of Knowing God. This is the second to the last chapter. Tonight we'll be focusing on chapter 21, and I'll be pro providing a summary and an explanation of some of the things that uh, J.I. Packer discusses in chapter 21 of Knowing God. And he's entitled this chapter, uh, These Inward Trials. And um, this is an interesting chapter in that he is dealing with a really the relationship of the gospel to the Christian life. And one particular way that this message can become distorted and imbalanced. And so he's addressing this in chapter 21. And he's doing this for a couple of reasons, I think. One, clearly, is to prevent any kind of distortion of the biblical gospel message. But also, too, I think his uh, intent is also pastoral in wanting to help Christians through some things that they may be dealing with, maybe some false understandings, false ideas about what living out the Christian life looks like. And really, he wants to set us free from some of the false bondage that we can be placed into when the gospel is not presented carefully with regard to how we live out the Christian faith. And so toward the beginning of the chapter, he says that, a well-meaning but inaccurate application of the gospel can cause disastrous results in the lives of new converts and immature Christians. So one of the things he says is that this imbalanced or distorted teaching of the gospel, it doesn't necessarily arise from bad motives. It arises from good motives. He says it's, it's a gospel evangelistic motive. But the problem is, even with a good motive, sometimes things can end up becoming distorted and cause bad results. And so this, this distortion primarily has to do with a gospel that promises too much. A gospel that promises too much, such as freedom from sin and temptation. Like, if you believe the gospel, if you trust Christ, then you'll have complete victory over your temptations and sin. Uh, a gospel that promises the resolution of all the difficulties in your relationships. If you'll come to Christ and embrace the gospel, then all your relationships will be fixed. Uh, if you come to Christ, then all of your fears and your doubts and your depressions will just melt away. Well, at best, this, an, this is an imbalanced presentation of the Christian life. But at worst, it is a gross distortion of the gospel that, I think Dr. Packer would say, and, and I would say, leads to false conversions and apostasy, that is, leaving uh, Christianity, leaving the church. And so he begins by talking about these doctrines that can be misapplied when they're imbalanced or distorted, even in a little bit. And he reminds us that the gospel does bring power over temptation and sin. 
So this is a fine line that he is walking in this chapter. He, he doesn't want to deny what the Bible teaches about the gospel, what the gospel really does do for us in our Christian life. But he also wants us to carefully think through what the gospel does not promise. And so the gospel does bring power over temptation and sin. Uh, Paul says in Romans 6 that if you're in Christ, you are no longer in bondage to sin. You're, you're set free from sin. Uh, the gospel does produce the fruit of joy and of peace through the Holy Spirit. We read in Galatians 5 that, that these are genuine fruits of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. Joy and peace, goodness. The gospel does bring us the abiding relationship with God, our Father. So we do have a close, abiding relationship, a relationship that I think we can experience and we can feel. Uh, like Paul says in Romans 8, the Holy Spirit bearing witness with our spirit that we are indeed God's children. Uh, the gospel can help us restore broken marriages, families, and relationships. So it's not as if the gospel doesn't impact any of these areas of our lives. It does. The, gospel, the Holy Spirit's indwelling does give us power over sin and to resist temptation and sin. Uh, the gospel does give us joy. The gospel can help us resolve broken relationships. So these are things that the gospel can and does do. But Here's the issue. To promise all of these things without the full picture, without the accompanying reality that the Christian life is also a struggle against temptation, the world, the flesh, and the devil, and a daily taking up of our cross to follow Jesus on the road of suffering is to misrepresent biblical teaching. And he says this in the chapter that, there have been imbalances both ways throughout church history at different times and different pockets of Christianity. There have been times when the, the truth of Christianity has been presented too austerely, that is too severely, and it's it, too much of a burden. It's all suffering. It's all drudgery. And he says it, it's right to react against that imbalanced teaching. But the reaction against that is not to embrace a gospel that is all just a bed of roses and it's all joy and all uh, all everything's good all the time. In, in essence, I think what Dr. Packer is talking against in this chapter is kind of a, a cousin of the health and wealth prosperity gospel. The health and wealth prosperity gospel promises promises you a good life in terms of uh, well-being of physically, financially, that, that God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and wise. And, and if you're not healthy and wealthy and prospering, then there must be a problem with your faith or a problem with your commitment to Christ somehow. Well, the error that Dr. Packer is addressing in this chapter, I think, is kind of a cousin to that. It's related to that, but it's instead of in the financial and the physical health realms, it's more in the emotional, spiritual, psychological realm, that that if you are really consecrated to Christ, if you are living an obedient life, 
then you will have psychological well-being. You'll have emotional well-being. Spiritually, you'll feel this connection to God and to Christ. And uh, and sometimes it's been referred to as the victorious Christian life of uh, being on top, you know, being on this mountaintop experience. And if you're not experiencing this, then maybe you're not as consecrated to Christ as you should be. This comes out of a, a teaching known as Keswick teaching, sometimes called the higher Christian life or the victorious Christian life. And it's it kind of subtle. It's subtly made its way into some very conservative evangelical circles of the Christian faith. And it's even made it into some of our hymns. Uh, I, I think of the hymn by Fanny Crosby, Blessed Assurance. Uh, and I've, I've got it here. Uh, you have in verse 2, she says, perfect submission, perfect delight. Visions of rapture now burst on my sight. It's almost this idea of is if you are in perfect submission and perfect consecration to God, then you will experience this perfect delight, this kind of mountaintop, victorious Christian life experience. Verse 3, perfect submission, all is at rest. I and my Savior am happy and blessed. And so it, it, it's kind of a subtle error that promises full delight, full blessing, if you are fully consecrated and fully uh, submitted to the will of the Father. So, But he says it really is a subtle misrepresentation of biblical teaching because the Christian life isn't all a bed of roses. There are difficulties, there are struggles, there are hardships that we face in the Christian life. And so the problem is, is that a convert to Christianity, a new Christian, who is drawn in with these false hopes of everything getting fixed and a a higher victorious Christian life through the gospel, that they're drawn in with these false hopes. And the problem is that that they quickly get disillusioned when the actual Christian life, their actual experience as a Christian is harder to trod. It's a harder journey than anticipated. And sometimes this person can fall away revealing, I believe, a false conversion, a false profession of faith. And I think this is taught, an element of this is taught by Jesus in his parable of the four types of ground in Matthew chapter 13. So Jesus told them a a parable saying, a farmer went out to sow his seed. As he was scattering the seed, some fell among along the path and the birds came and ate it up. Some fell on rocky places where it did not have much soil. It sprang up quickly because the soil was shallow. Notice it didn't have strong roots. When the sun came up, the plants were scorched and they withered because they had no root. Now listen to the way Jesus explains it later on in the passage. The seed falling on rocky ground refers to someone who hears the word and at once receives it with joy, thinking maybe perhaps this is exactly what he's been looking for his whole life, and this is going to be great. This is going to solve all of his problems. But notice verse 21. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. Why? Because trouble comes. Persecution comes because of the word, and they quickly fall away. 
In other words, when things in actual experience don't match up with their expectations of what the Christian life would be, they become disillusioned and they fall away. So that's the kind of error that he's wanting us to be careful of in this chapter. Now, here's how the Christian life works. A new believer, God is going to treat that new convert with care and with tenderness as a mother would her young child. So he says God is often very gentle with young Christians. Their Christian life may begin with uh, ease and some really helpful experiences to ground them in their Christian faith, uh, an emotional joy, uh, striking providences of God's blessings in their life, answers to prayer, perhaps even uh, initial fruitfulness in their witness to unbelievers. But as they grow stronger and are able to bear more, God doesn't leave them in this infantile, immature condition. He wants to strengthen them. And so he exercises them in a tougher school, including testing, opposition, discouragements, and weakness. So God doesn't continue to treat a Christian as a new baby their whole Christian life, just like a parent doesn't treat their child as a baby their whole Christian life. As that child matures and grows, they will be given greater and greater challenges, greater and greater responsibilities, greater and greater obstacles that they have to deal with. So also in the Christian life, in order to help us grow and as we grow, God is going to give us uh, some obstacles, some things that are going to challenge and then strengthen our faith. So through these more difficult experiences, he builds our character, strengthens our faith, and prepares us to help others. He glorifies himself in our lives, causing us to depend upon him, making his strength perfect in our weakness. One of the reasons why God does what he does in maturing us as believers, in bringing us through some difficult times and bringing us obstacles, is he wants us to come to the end of ourselves. He wants us to see our own weaknesses and to renounce self-dependence, self-sufficiency, so that we have to depend on his strength, on his grace. And in that, God is glorified. He is exalted. He says in this section of the chapter, there is nothing unnatural, therefore, in an increase of temptations, conflicts, and pressures as the Christian goes on with God, that is, as he matures in his walk with God. Indeed, something would be wrong if it did not happen. So rather than being unnormal or unusual for the Christian life, difficulties, increase in temptations, struggle against our flesh, the world and the devil, trials. These things are not abnormal. These things are a part of the Christian life that God brings in to mature us. So then he talks about the wrong remedy. So the first part of the chapter was about kind of a, a wrong impression that some preachers, pastors, gospel witnesses 
can give of the gospel. And that wrong impression is that the gospel offers too much. It promises too much in terms of a, a, an easy or rosy Christian life without struggle. So then what happens then when a Christian struggles, when they do face temptations, when they do face trials and difficulties, when they do make mistakes, when they don't feel uh, this emotional high of this connection with God or his indwelling spirit, what, what's the problem then? And how is that, uh, how is that remedied? And here he says can make the problem even worse because you then have a distortion of the gospel, which promises too much that the Christian life will be too easy. And then when that doesn't happen, here's the bad advice. Well, there must be a problem with your faith. There must be a problem with your consecration to God. And that then just exacerbates the problem, makes it worse. So those who oversell the gospel, painting only a rosy picture of the Christian life, they also apply the wrong remedy when things do not happen as expected, only making the problem worse. So struggles, temptations, loss of joy, discouragement, these are diagnosed in this wrong view, in this distorted view, These things, these struggles, these temptations, they are diagnosed as failures caused by this believer's lack of consecration or weakening of faith. So the problem then is placed back on the believer. So the struggling new Christian then is counseled to find, confess, and forsake his defection, to reconsecrate himself to Christ, and maintain his consecration daily. And as they re-consecrate, as they resubmit, as they redevote themselves to Christ, they are promised then that this mountaintop, victorious Christian life will then re-emerge and be their experience. So having done this, this Christian is promised a return to this mountaintop Christian life experience. And here's the thing, in all error, in all distortions, confusions of truth, there's always some truth there. There's always a mixture of that which is right, but it's it's mixed in with some subtle errors. And the same here. The truth is that in the Christian life, when we sin, when we deliberately sin, and we know that we've sinned, it will cause it will, it will have an effect on our joy. So it will cause a believer's joy, his rest of heart, peace to ebb, to recede, to not be experienced perhaps in its fullness. So sin can cause that lack of joyful Christian experience. But here's the problem then. So, but... Struggle against temptation, fighting against sin, wrestling with the flesh, encountering times of discouragement. These are a normal part of the Christian life. 
they are not necessarily marks of there's something wrong with you or that you're in rebellion or that you're wayward away from Christ or there's some problem with your lack of devotion or lack of consecration. The presence of troubles, struggle, increased temptation, etc., it's not necessarily an indication of failure on the believer's part to maintain consecration to Christ. It more than likely is God's exercising his child to become more mature and complete in Christ. So if a Christian is facing difficulties, facing a particularly rough stretch of a fight, of struggle against temptation, of battle with sin, that is not necessarily an indication that they've that they're lacking in their devotion or consecration or love to Christ. It may be just a normal part of their Christian experience as God seeks to grow them, to mature them in the Christian life. So the problem with this error, this higher Christian life or this victorious Christian life, this Keswick teaching, the problem with it then is that added to the imbalance of promising an overinflated and rosy picture of the Christian life, added to that is the false remedy of bondage to this self-introspection and guilt over lack of consecration when the Christian life is an uphill climb. So it's almost like you've got two problems compounded and made worse. One is the distortion of the Christian life that says it's all going to be this higher life victorious Christian life experience. And then if you're not experiencing that, they add to that the, the, the extra burden of, well, it must be your lack of consecration to Christ. It must be a lack of faith or of devotion. And so it ends up bringing the Christian under this sense of burden of guilt of, oh, what do I do now? I'm, maybe I'm not devoted to Christ as I ought to be. When really what they're experiencing is maybe just God growing them bringing them through a difficult time to mature them in the Christian faith. So this false kind of distorted view, it sentences devoted Christians to a treadmill life of hunting each day for non-existent failures and consecration in the belief that if only they could find some such failures to confess and forsake, they could recover an experience of spiritual infancy, which God means them now to leave behind. And he, he goes back to what he's mentioned before, and that as God, like a parent, he is maturing, growing his child. He doesn't want them to continue to have to be cared for like an infant. So as they grow up, they're going to face difficulties in ways that an infant or a toddler would not. It, they're going to have to learn to handle some things on their own. They're going to be faced with some challenges. And those challenges are intended to help them grow and mature. Thus, it not only produces this false view, this rosy picture view of the Christian life, and then added to that the false remedy of always questioning their consecration to God, Thus, it not only produces spiritual regression and unreality, it sets them at cross purposes with their God 
who has taken them from the carefree glow of spiritual babyhood with its huge chuckles and contented passivity, precisely in order that he may lead them into an experience that is more adult and mature. So encountering challenges and difficulties and struggles with temptation in the Christian life is not abnormal at all. It's a part of God's growing us up to become more like Christ. And he says that really the primary issue with this false understanding of the gospel and Christian life is that it is losing sight of what grace is. It's losing sight of what grace is and what grace is meant to accomplish. So he says, what is wrong with this teaching? He says there's several things that's wrong with this teaching. One, it fails to grasp New Testament teaching on sanctification and Christian warfare. That is that true growth and holiness and growing in Christ involves spiritual warfare and fighting against the flesh, the world, and the devil. Uh, The problem with this teaching also is that it does not understand the meaning of growth in grace, of growing, maturing in the Christian life. This teaching does not understand the operation of indwelling sin. That is that, yes, in Christ, with the indwelling Holy Spirit, we're no longer in bondage to sin. But also, neither are we completely set. Uh, Neither is it completely delivered from our lives. We will still continue to do battle with sin throughout our earthly Christian experience. Uh, This teaching confuses the Christian life on earth with the Christian life as it will be in heaven. In, In other words, We should not expect our life in the here and now in this world as Christians to be complete victory all the time. That's what heaven is for. That's the new heavens and the new earth. Glorification, complete deliverance from the presence of sin. This teaching also misconceives the psychology of Christian obedience. By by misunderstanding spirit-prompted activity, versus spirit-prompted passivity. So sometimes this Keswick teaching uses the mantra of let go and let God. Just consecrate yourself to God. Just let go and let God. That is a a kind of a a motto of this higher life, victorious Christian life, Keswick teaching. But the Christian life is not one of passivity. The true biblical Christian life, as it is described in the scriptures, is one of spirit-prompted effort, spirit-prompted activity, so that Peter can say in 1 Peter chapter 1, we've been given everything that we need for life and godliness, so now, with all diligence, add these things to your faith. So the spirit is working in us, but it's not in a, we're not passive in the process of our growth and holiness. We are active through the energy that the Spirit provides. This teaching also, and here's his main point in this section of the chapter, this teaching loses sight of the method and the purpose of grace. So what is grace? Grace fundamentally is God's love in action toward people who merited the opposite of love. So we deserve hell. We deserve 
wrath. We deserve condemnation. Grace gives us the exact opposite of what we deserve. It is God's love in action toward people who deserve nothing. In fact, they deserve the opposite of goodness. And in God's demonstration of grace, there is both a will of grace and a work of grace. The will is the purpose, God's plan, his eternal plan to save. The work of grace is that plan being put into action in our lives. God's good work in you, Paul says in Philippians 1.6. So it is God's regenerating us giving us new birth. It is God calling us to himself through effectual calling. It is God awakening faith within us and then his spirit indwelling us to begin to produce the fruits of the spirit in our lives. So there's grace planned, but then there's also grace affected, being acted out in our lives. So grace includes then not only God's purpose, but also his work of actually making us into children of God who reflect the Christian image, the the family likeness of Christ. So what is the purpose of grace then? The purpose of grace primarily is to restore our relationship with God, to reconcile us to our creator and to bring us into a relationship of communion, of fellowship with him. God, through the gospel, through the work of Christ, forgives our sins in order that we might have fellowship with him, so that we might have this relationship of communion with him. God renews our nature through the new birth, through regeneration, in order to lead us into the exercise of love, trust, delight, hope, and obedience toward God. The work of grace aims at an even deeper knowledge of God and an ever closer fellowship with him. So grace is God drawing us sinners closer and closer to himself. How does God do this? How does God fulfill this purpose of grace? And here's where biblical teaching differs from this confused idea of a victorious Christian life or this Keswick teaching. God accomplishes this purpose of grace in us not by shielding us from assault by the world, the flesh, and the devil. Not by protecting us from burdensome and frustrating circumstances. Not by shielding us from troubles created by our own temperament and psychology. The gospel doesn't deliver us from the issues of our personality or our temperament or our psychology. This is what God is doing through the gospel. God exposes us to all of these things. That is battle with temptation, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Challenges, difficulties, struggles. God exposes us to all these things so as to overwhelm us with a sense of our own inadequacy and to drive us to cling to him more closely. This is the ultimate reason from our standpoint why God fills our lives with troubles and perplexities of one sort and another. It is to ensure that we shall learn to hold him fast. God makes us weak so that he 
will be strong. God wants us to feel that our way through life is rough and perplexing so that we may learn thankfully to lean on him. Therefore, he takes steps to drive us out of self-confidence, to trust in himself. So we are to be uh, drawn into a closer relationship with him, and that includes dependence upon him through the difficulties, not around them, not over them, not, not without them, but through them, through temptations, through struggles, through trials and difficulties. And this is God's process to take us through these things, to mature us, and at times when we fail, to restore us. It is often God's pattern and purpose to use our sins and our mistakes to mature us in Christ. He employs the educative discipline of failures and mistakes very frequently. And so all across the Bible, we see examples of people sinning and God chastening them for it. And he gives several examples in the chapter. You've got Abraham who becomes impatient and takes Sarah's advice and has a child with Hagar, Ishmael. God wanted him to be patient. And all kinds of difficulties and, and troubles arise in their family because of Abraham's impatience. Uh, he gives the example of Moses, you know, rash and impatient, killing an Egyptian, uh, trying to become the mediator of the Israelites' problems, and, and he's run off out into the wilderness to watch over sheep for 40 years. Uh, we see David in uh, his sin with Bathsheba and killing Uriah the Hittite and, and in pride taking a census and numbering his troops. And, and all of this, God chastens him for that. But that's not the end, is it? God chastens them, but it's for a purpose, isn't it? It's, there's more to the story. So the point is to stress this, that the human mistake and the immediate divine displeasure were in no case the end of the story. God is using all of those things, all of our failures, even our sins, to teach us that we need to depend on his grace. So God can bring good out of the extremes of our own folly. God can restore the years that the locust has eaten. He says this toward the very end of the chapter. Unreality in religion is an accursed thing. What does he mean by that? What he's been talking about through this whole chapter, this, this false promise, this false idea that the gospel promises a rosy, easy, smooth Christian life. And that if you're not experiencing that, the problem's with you. Your lack of devotion, your lack of consecration to God. He says that's an unreal picture of the Christian life. It's not one that the Bible presents at all. And he says unreality in religion is an accursed thing. Unreality toward God is the wasting disease of much modern Christianity. He says what we need then is reality. We need God to make us realists about both ourselves and him. That is, so we truly understand ourselves and our experience through the lens of the scriptures as it really is, 
and also as we truly know and experience God as he really is, not as we think he should be, but as he really is. So unreality in religion is an accursed thing. He finishes with this hymn by John Newton. And I don't often include the poems or the hymns that J.I. Packer quotes throughout the book, and there are many of them. But I'm including this one because I thought it was it particularly expressed well what the essence of this chapter was about. Here's what John Newton writes. I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. That's a God-oriented prayer. God, help me to grow. I want to know more of your faith, love, and grace. I hoped that in some favored hour, at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. That is, in essence, what this Keswick teaching, this higher victorious Christian life is teaching, that that God will just zap you with victory, with victory, with full rest and, and complete uh, victory over sin. Kind of what Fanny Crosby writes, perfect submission, all is at rest. But here's what he says. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more, with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds, and laid me low. So he seemed like at every every turn, God was frustrating his plans. Everything, Nothing was going right. And he, he gives this reference to the book of Jonah, this gourd that grew up and, and shaded Jonah. And he says, God was blasting those away, took away my shade. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Another reference to Jonah. Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayer for grace and faith. In other words, John Newton said, I prayed for grace and faith. But instead of God just zapping me with it, he brought me through trials. He brought me through difficulties. He brought me through the the valley of the shadow of death. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest seek thy all in me. That is what Dr. Packer wanted us to get out of this chapter is that the Christian life in its normal expression, its normal experience is not flying on cloud nine. It's not a smooth road all the time. It's not a higher victorious life all the time. It is a struggle often. It is a struggle against our own flesh, against our own desires and temptations. It's a struggle against the world. 
It's a struggle against Satan and his minions. It is a slog through frustrations and setbacks and difficulties, our plans being foiled. That's the Christian life, but God staying with us through those things and God's spirit teaching us the lessons that we need to learn through those things. And that even in the midst of those times, we can have joy and peace. So biblical joy and peace is not the absence of difficulty. Biblical joy and peace is knowing that God is with us and for us, even in difficulty. And so Dr. Packer wanted us to know a, a realistic expression of the Christian life, not free from trouble at all, but one that often has troubles, but ones that are used by God to mature us. And so I hope that this chapter, this summary of it will be helpful to you. Let's bow in prayer together. Father of grace, we thank you for your infinite wisdom that in ways beyond our full comprehension, you are providentially using all of the experiences in our lives to mature us into the image of Christ. Lord, as your word says, Romans 8, 28, you are working all things together for good, for those who love God, for those who are called according to your purpose. And that good ultimately, Romans 8, 29, is to conform us to the image of your son. So, Father, we recognize and we know that the Christian life is going to be filled with challenges at times will be an uphill climb. But Father, you've designed this to make us stronger. And also for us to renounce our self-dependence and to rest and rely upon you. Father, be glorified in our lives, be glorified in our church. And Lord, do complete the work that you've begun in us. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. May God bless the rest of your week.